All right. Well, it is a pleasure for me to be here tonight. Uh, this topic is something that I have wrestled with and I have taught on a couple times. Uh, does science disprove Christianity? And so let me kind of set the groundwork for what I want to do tonight and what I'm not going to do tonight. The goal tonight is not to say, okay, how do we respond to evolution, whether it be macroevolution or microevolution? How do we respond to old earth versus young earth? We've got all those answers and we can do those things, but that's not what I want to do tonight. What I want to do tonight is to show you that this discussion between science and Christianity is about two competing worldviews with two competing notions of what reality is, which results in two different ideas of what is true. And then we're going to end with science only works if it operates out of a theistic worldview. So I'm not going to address each individual because we'd be here all night if we had... What do you do with the expanding rate of the universe? And what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? Uh, But I want to set down just the underpinnings so that you can see these ideas as they pop up in our culture. Uh, One of the things that that I'm really big on is if we know the undercurrent, if we know what's really below the idea, then that's going to prepare us as the ideas change. So, for example, if we understand the biblical concept of identity, then we can deal with issues of same-sex attraction or LGBT, because those are all identity issues. Racial reconciliation is an identity issue. And so if we hit the bottom of what's going on here and we can respond biblically there, then it makes responding to these cultural waves a whole lot easier. So let's start uh, with Scripture, Romans chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Let's pick up in verse 18. So Romans chapter 1. And we're just going to look at verses 18 through 23, and this is what the Word of God says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And let's look at this next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So let's just back up for a few minutes and look verses 20 through 23, and let's see what happens here. We see the doctrine of what we call general revelation in this passage. And what we mean by the doctrine of general revelation is that God has revealed himself generally through the things that have been made. So we can look at the laws of creation. We can look at all the things that science wants to measure, and we see that God is revealed in those things. That's different than special revelation. Special revelation is what we hold in our hands as the written word, And special revelation includes the person of Jesus Christ who, if you look at John chapter 1 verse 18, he came not just to redeem but also to reveal the Father. And so the way that general and special revelation work is that general revelation will authenticate special revelation and special revelation will interpret general revelation. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. Special revelation, the Bible tells us why the tomb is empty. General revelation tells us the tomb is empty. And you see how those two things are going to work together. So when we look at science, we get this idea of general revelation. Scripture tells us that we are all condemned, we are all without excuse, because we can learn about God through creation. We can learn two things. We can learn His eternal power, 
and His divine nature. And notice that Paul says these things are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So therefore, we're without excuse. Why? Because we have flipped that. And we have suppressed the truth of what we can learn about God through creation. And we see in verse 21, although that they knew God, they did not honor God. And you see this exchange that happens. And we now worship creation instead of the creator. We worship ourselves instead of God. We see that because of our transaction where we are going to worship the things of creation and not the creator, our minds become futile and our hearts become darkened. Our minds don't work the way they're supposed to. And our hearts, they, they choose after the wrong things. This is why that later in the book, Paul's going to write that we're transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. Why? Because our minds, we, we have what we call the noetic effects of sin. What that means is that part of our depravity is that our minds don't work the way they're supposed to work. And so they have to be transformed under regeneration. So when we come to faith in Christ... It's not just that we're reconciled back to God through the work of Christ. That's certainly true. But we also should pursue new things. This is why we're told to love the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind and our strength. So the way we think will be fundamentally different from those who are unbelievers. So as we think through this, I mentioned earlier that this idea of does science and Christianity, are they opposed to one another, is about two different worldviews. And so I want to set the baseline to just talk about what worldviews are. We hear that term a whole lot, uh, but the simplest definition of the worldview is it's how you see the world. It's how you interpret the world around you. And so again, the simplest definition of the term worldview is simply how you see the world. Now, and here's the trick. Most people, they don't realize what their own worldview is. Actually, they don't realize that they don't have a worldview, but a worldview has them. This is why that I put so much in our students about understanding a Christian worldview. Because a Christian worldview is going to be fundamentally different than some of the other worldviews that we're going to come across. Most people, because they don't understand the power that the worldview has over them, they don't understand the blinders that they have up. And so if everybody has a worldview, then what this means is that everything that we create as individuals also comes out of that worldview. So a good way that you could think through this is you can watch a television show or you can watch or you can listen to a song or you can, you can do anything and you can say, okay, what does this say about man? What does this say about God? What does this say about the problem? What does this say about the solution? What does this say about life as it is? And so when I was at Southeastern, I had a professor there, Dr. Mark Lederbach, and he gave a really, really good definition of a worldview. And I'm going to share it with you tonight because I think it helps us to put these into categories to think through. And so here's what he said. He says that a worldview is a system of beliefs. So a worldview is a system of beliefs. Worldview is a system of beliefs by which an individual, so it's a system of beliefs, by which an individual will perceive, interpret, and judge reality. So it's a system of beliefs by which an individual will perceive, interpret, and judge reality. So what this means is that our worldview kind of op it operates in the background, and when we experience something... It, it determines how we perceive it, it determines what we make of it, and it determines how we judge it. 
Our worldview determines what we think reality is. I mean, at the end of the day, when we interpret something, we try to make sense of it, and if our worldview will only allow us to make sense in these categories, then, then that's all we have. There are certain pieces of a worldview, and worldviews can have, some people will say three, some people will say 15. I can give you five components, and two of them we're going to look at tonight. But every worldview is going to have a statement about reality. That's called metaphysics. It's a nice big fancy word. Don't get caught up in it. But the idea of it's going to say what is real. Every worldview is also going to have a statement about truth. What is true and how do we know it? Big fancy word there. It's called epistemology. Impress your friends. So we have metaphysics. We have epistemology of the nature of reality and the nature of truth. Every worldview is going to have something to say about humanity. They call that anthropology. What is a human being? I mean, at the end of the day, this is what the abortion issue is. Is the status, what is the status of the entity in the womb? If it's a human being, then we can do these things. If it's not a human being, then we can do these things. So if we've got a statement about reality, we have a statement about truth, we have a statement about human beings, we have a statement about God, even the statement that God doesn't exist is a theological statement. And then finally, they have a statement about beauty. And this concept of beauty is not just what we determine to be beautiful, but it's also what we determine to be good. What does the good life look like? What is a beautiful life? So worldviews, they really boil down to three questions that we could answer. What is real? What's true? And what's good? And every worldview is going to seek to answer that question. And so I wanted to set up tonight by looking at that to say, what's the foundational definition of a worldview so that we can now compare the two different worldviews and how that they're going to run on these parallel tracks about what reality is. On one hand, you've got naturalism, and on the other hand, you have theism. Or we could say science and Christianity. So when we look at this, it, it does seem to be a, a, you know, a contentious piece in culture today. We have to trust the science. We have to do these things. But you also have to understand that science operates out of certain assumptions. And so, again, there's four major worldviews. You don't have to write this down, but the, they are theism, pantheism, naturalism, and postmodernism. And if you really want to dive into something that's make your head hurt, start studying postmodernism that says there is no such thing as truth and that there's no story of reality and it just, you just get nowhere real quick. <clears throat> it's funny because postmodernists, they believe in something called deconstructionism, which means no text has a truth in it, but they write books to tell you that no text has a truth in it. And this is where it creeps into our churches is when you sit in a Bible study and somebody says, what does this text mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you because we affirm authorial intent. How it applies to you is different. <laughs> so so when, we look, when we look at these worldviews, uh, you should be now into the second part of your notes with two competing concepts of reality. And so here's the first one we want to look at. The physical universe is all there is. That's the definition of naturalism. So when you see naturalism there, I want you to do this. I want you to draw a box and understand that naturalism says all that we have is the physical universe. That means everything is inside the box. There is nothing outside of the box. There's nothing supernatural. So everything that is is inside the box, which also means everything that happens has to be explained 
from inside the box. You see, this is a problem if we don't understand what worldviews are and we speak to someone who's a naturalist and we say, God raised Jesus from the dead, that explains the empty tomb. God's not even on their radar because for them, all that exists is the box itself, right? So, so many times we have to deal with their naturalism before we can deal with theism. Now, I wasn't alive uh, the first time this came out, but uh, I've seen it. Carl Sagan had a show called Cosmos where he started and he said, the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be, and that is naturalism in probably the most succinct definition. It's been revamped and redone like everything else, and uh, so now Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, hosts this show. But again, the idea that the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. And so what they, what they land on here is, and again, big word, don't be afraid of it, metaphysical naturalism just means the box is all there is. That's it. So if all you have is the box, then that means nothing exists if it cannot be experienced through the senses. If you can't touch it, smell it, taste it, see it, or hear it, it doesn't exist. Now I got into trouble about this once because I had somebody say this to me. And I said, well, then you don't have a mind. And he said, yeah, I do. It's between my ears. And I said, no, that's your brain. That's the physical component. But your mind is the non-physical component. And if you really want to hold to a naturalistic worldview, then you can't have things that you can't touch, smell, taste, see, or hear, which means you don't have any thoughts. You can't experience love. You don't have hope. You don't have fear. You don't have any of those things. There's no emotions. But yet you live as if you do, which means either your view of the world is wrong or you're just inconsistent in how you live it out. So naturalism, it's the idea that nothing exists outside of the box. Now let's contrast that to theism. Theism is the idea, and this is theism in general, not Christian theism yet, but theism is the idea that the universe's existence depends upon the act of a creator. So theism would argue that the universe cannot exist unless a creator creates it. Which means creation and creator are distinctly separate. Now this is different than what we would refer to as transcendentalism. If you've seen a Star Wars movie, you've seen it, where creation and creator are one and the same, right? Um, no, we, we don't affirm that. But we as theists are going to say that there is a distinct difference between creation and creator. In fact, we get this from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means that God existed before the beginning and God created everything else. And if everything else is not created, then it doesn't exist. Philosophically, that means it's what we call a contingent being. Its existence, our existence, creation's existence is contingent upon God creating it. He is what we call necessary. He doesn't need anything. He exists of his own nature, and he decides to create, and he creates by speaking creation into existence. Notice that there are attributes of God that we can see in creation, but God is not in creation, as in the trees are divine, and the cows are divine, and the rocks are divine, and all those things. So you have those two different worldviews. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, as I mentioned. In the beginning, God existed before the beginning, and then he creates everything else. And so we get this idea where naturalists, or what we call metaphysical naturalists, we would be what we call metaphysical dualists. We believe that there are physical and non-physical entities in the universe. 
And, you know, I'm always reminded of that passage in the Old Testament where if we really saw the spiritual realm, I think that we would cower. Because every time an angel shows up, the first words out of his mouth is, do not be afraid. That means it is not the friendly little thing that sits on the top of your Christmas tree. It is not the uh, chubby little baby on the front of Van Halen's 1984 album. These things are terrifying to look at. <laughs> and, and so when we look at this idea of dualism, there are non-physical things that we know that exist. So we have physical entities and non-physical entities. Now notice the two different views here. One says the box is all there is. One says that there's the box and there's a creator outside of the box that has created everything that is in the box. And that creator can interact with his creation. And he does interact with his creation. Now you can have theists that are what we call deists. And deists say God just kind of winds it up and lets it go. But that's not the God that we see revealed in scripture. That we see that God is both transcendent and he is imminent. Right? So what happens now is now we're at point number three. Whatever your view of reality is will also determine your view of what truth is. This has been a major emphasis in philosophy throughout, uh, throughout history. How do we know anything at all? You've got one group of people that are rationalists and they say we know everything by using our mind. You have another group of people that are empiricists and say we know everything by using our senses. You've got some in the middle that say it's a combination of both. But I cannot stress enough However you view reality to be will determine how you view truth to be. So what that means, if you're a naturalist, then the only way that you know truth is by using your five senses. So not just can it not exist, but you can't know it. You can't know anything unless you can measure it, you can weigh it, you can taste it, smell it, touch it, any of those things. And so what happens here is that we find ourselves in a culture that has what we call a fractured view of truth. This is called the facts value split. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, Francis Schaeffer, he, he said in the 60s, here's where this thing's coming and you guys better get a hold of it. And, and here we are right in the middle of it. But he said that we have divided truth into what's an upper story and a lower story. And what he meant by that was that the lower story is a public truth that is known through science and is true for everybody. But the upper story is your opinion. And so what happens is that when we take that and, we, and our culture says, okay, well now we have religion versus science. Religion, you can't touch, smell, taste, see, or hear God, so that's your opinion. So let's move to the upper story, and you can argue about that all day, but at the very bottom, anything that's proven by science has to be true. Well, the problem is that statement's not proven by science, so that, remove, that removes it to the upper story because that's their opinion, right? So as we think through this, we live in a world that says what's proven by science is true, and if, if it's not proven by science, that's your opinion. It's good that you have it, but don't force it on anybody else. And let me give you an example of this. We see now that there's a difference between sex and gender. Gender is what you determine it to be based upon how you feel. That's an upper story discussion. But your sex is a lower story discussion. But what we forget is that every cell in my body has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That's proven by science. And so 100 years from now, when they dig up my body, they're going to go, that was a male because there's an X chromosome 
and a Y chromosome, and that is every cell in your body. That's scientific, right? Well, unless you want to divorce it from gender to say, well, gender has been, um, that's been assigned to you. You've been oppressed by that, by them putting your gender when, you know, you think about gender reveal parties, nobody has a, like a gray balloon that just says, hey, it's going to determine what it's going to be later, right? So when we think about this, we in our culture today have kind of bought into this to when we say there's different things that are true if it's proven by science as are proven by my opinion. And so what we have to do, if we're going to be good about this, is we have to remove that distinction to where it's not religion versus science or religion versus history. It's good science versus bad science. Good science is approaching something and say, what are all the possible solutions for this and what best explains all the phenomena we have? Bad science is going, well, it can't be creation because we don't believe in God, so we have to find some other thing, but we're not going to consider this one at all. And so what happens is when we buy into this system, we end up with this discussion we have tonight that Christianity and science are incompatible because we believe, well, there's certain truths that are proven by science and there's others that are proven by your opinion. So when you get into naturalism, they would affirm something called scientism. This is is where they really land, is that knowledge is only known through the scientific method. You can only know something if it can be scientifically proven. But again, that statement can't be scientifically proven. Here's the thing that, that I ask when we go through this. Do we know other things that we don't know through science? I mean, are, are there things that we know intuitively that are not scientific? Like the laws of logic. We have something called the law of non-contradiction, which says that something cannot be both what it is and what it is not at the same time in the same respect, but that's not proven by science. But you have to have it work for science to work. The other thing that scientism and naturalism at a larger scale can't can do, science can tell us what is, but not why. You see, science can tell you what works, but science can tell you why science works. It just says that it works. There's no scientific experiment to show you that science works. And here's probably the bigger problem that I have. Science can tell us what is, but it can't tell us what should be. So when you have naturalists who fight for concepts like justice, which are non-measurable through your senses, and they're non-physical, and they tell you this is what should be happening, and you have to ask the question, says who? Because science doesn't prove that we should fight for justice. And science doesn't prove what a human being is from a soul standpoint. Why why do we all have value as human beings? Science can't tell you that. In fact, if you hold on to a purely scientific worldview, you get the Pol Pots and you get the Hitlers and you get all of these worldviews that say only the strong survive, get rid of the weak. You, You have these laws that are passed in Denmark that says it is your moral obligation to abort a child if it has Down syndrome because you have to remove those chromosomes from the gene pool. It's your moral obligation. See, if we follow science that way, you can't explain morality. You can't even have concepts like good and evil from a purely scientific worldview. You can't have human value. You can't have universal benevolence to where we don't just take care of our poor. We take care of 
others poor? Natural selection would say, it's a dog-eat-dog world and only the strong survive. Which always baffles me because we have things that we would say are inherent in our governmental system, and, and, and don't take this the wrong way. Yeah, we should help out with welfare to get people a hand up. But if we're going to say God doesn't exist and they're going to have a naturalistic worldview, then why do we continue some of these programs? But that's just me. That is not the opinion of Hickory Grove Baptist Church or any of its subsidiaries, so please email me and not Pastor Clint Presley if you have uh, umbrage with that. Anyway, so uh, as we, we kind of get a little closer to the end here, theism, let's look at the idea of theism and how it approaches truth. John Frame who is a Reformed theologian. If you've not read him, you need to. Um, he says that truth, re- truth reveals God's control, God's authority, and God's presence. John Frame says that, that truth reveals God's control, authority, and presence. Now, here's what he means. God's control means that God decides whether we get to know anything or not. It's not up to us whether we decide, hey, I think I want to know something. God determines what we can know because he's created us as logical beings in a logical universe that flows out of his logical character. His authority means that he is the ultimate criteria for what's true or false, not us. We can't determine that we want something to be true just because we like it or it makes us feel good. And that should encourage us in some ways. Because when we read Scripture and we understand the truth of our salvation through the work of Christ, and it doesn't matter if you don't feel saved when you wake up one morning. Because the truth of the matter is, based upon what God has decreed on the work of, through the work of Christ at Calvary, that if you have placed your faith in Him, you are. You can't lose that. We don't let feelings drive the truth. And then lastly, God's presence is His self-revelation that makes us able to know anything at all. This is what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 1, where he says that God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. So God has decided that we can know something about him, so we study creation to learn about him. You can think of it this way. Um, Some theologians, philosophers, they've drawn two circles. A larger circle at the top and a smaller circle at the bottom with arrows at the top, and they're going down. Meaning that God is revealing himself into creation, and it's not that we are revealing ourselves to God. If the arrows aren't there, we don't know anything at all. I mean, one of the the greatest truths that we have is that God exists and he has revealed himself to us. And yet we let this sit and grow dust and go... Well, I mean, think about it. The God who spoke, the, spoke creation into existence has revealed himself in a book, and we hate to read. If you think about um, church history, so we have a, a famous church historian, Thomas Aquinas, and he said this, that theology is the queen of the sciences. And what he meant by that was that all of the sciences point back to the centrality of learning who God is. Almost all of the early scientists were theists. They dove into science for the purpose of worshiping God. They dove into science so they could learn more about God and worship Him. And so what happens here is that we, we kind of move away from that. 
So the last point that I've got for you, number four there, the scientific method actually assumes a Christian worldview. So before, we had this historical moment called the Enlightenment, right? And the Enlightenment, it, it presupposes, like nobody wrote that they lived in the middle of the Enlightenment. They give these names afterwards, right? So you have the Enlightenment, but before you have the Enlightenment, you have the Dark Ages, right? Now here's what's happening. During those times, scholasticism's taking off, and people are, they're, they're relying on revelation for truth. And so, of course, we come later and we say, oh, well, why do we call that the Dark Ages? Because man didn't rely upon his reason to arrive at truth. He relied upon a book. He relied upon Scripture to give him truth. And so man, during the Dark Ages, they, he, he, he sought to learn about God through Scripture. But during the Enlightenment and then later the Renaissance, the rebirth, that man emerges from this darkness through the power of reason. Now, what do we know about reason? Scripture tells us that our minds are futile and they don't work the way that they're supposed to. And so if you look at the history of philosophy, you see that man emerges out of the darkness and he goes into this enlightenment period in which he becomes the measure of all things. So if man can't understand it, it can't be true. Now, it's not by coincidence that the scientific revolution revolution takes off at the same time. So you've got the scientific revolution, you've got the empirical method that we're all familiar with if we've had a biology or chemistry class, and Charles Darwin all emerge at the same time and are seen to be authoritative because why? Man's reason trumps revelation. If we think about science, though, a lot of times people think that science is infallible. Well, go back and read the history of science because the history of science is the long history of one failure after another, after another, after another. I mean, if science were infallible, we would have a flat earth. Some people think we do. But we would have a flat earth, and we would think that the earth is the center of our solar system. But fortunately, we have guys like Copernicus that go, wait a minute, hold on. Something seems a little off here. We're not the center of the universe. So when we understand math and we understand science and we understand all these subfields, they presuppose an ordered universe. They presuppose that things aren't going to change over time. They do not, they do not presuppose. I mean, if you go, those of you that are interested in science, go look at some of these anthropological constants that show if, if the earth was tilted one way, uh, like one degree or another, that we would either freeze out or burn up and you know you read all these things the fine-tuning of the universe and you go man we're just really lucky because all of that came out of chaos I mean that's what you're forced to believe if you hold to a truly naturalistic worldview that nothing and by nothing I mean nothing exploded and out of that chaos we get this order that we have here today Yet everything in reality shows us that things never move from chaos to order. They always move from order to chaos. They devolve. They don't evolve. Again, the earliest universities, they were set up on this idea that the theology department was the center of the school. This is why it was called a university. It was one truth, una veritas in Latin, to where all of the departments pointed towards the truth of Scripture. But now we have what should be called like the pluralversity of North Carolina at Charlotte because the history department has their truth and the English department has their truth and the math department has their truth and 
You can have all these different truths in all these different departments. And so we've moved so far away from that because we believe in a modern or a postmodern worldview that truth is relative. And ethics are relative. But do we really live that? Because I don't want somebody who believes that truth is relative designing the next airplane that I get on. And those of us that have children in the room, now I'm about 14 years away from this happening, but when Jack starts to drive and I tell him, hey, you're going to have to slow down when it's raining, you're going to have to increase your stopping distance because the friction generated by your brakes is going to be less because they're going to be wet, that's a, that's a scientific law. It's not relative. And we can give lip service to, well, ethics are relative. This, this one almost got me in trouble. Uh, so he, I was speaking with a guy, and he said, ethics are relative. And I said, well, do you lock your doors at night? And he said, yeah, why? And I said, well, then you're oppressing me with the idea that your truth, that I shouldn't take your stuff, is more important than my truth, that I can have whatever I want from your house. <laughs> we, we don't live that way. Tomorrow's payday for us. I'm not banking at Bank of America if it's relative. What's true for you is this much money came in. What's true for us? So we give this idea that's in, in scientism that, you know, you can have these scientific truths, but yet the way you live your life is relative, and it's, it's just simply not true because science, it has to assume, assume a couple of things. Science requires the following things for it to work. Number one, naturalistic laws have to be orderly and consistent. The coefficient of gravity doesn't change tomorrow because it's a Thursday. If it does, we're in trouble. Science has to be orderly because they know the whole process of an experiment is that you can repeat the same thing over and over and over again and get the same result. That's orderly and that's consistent. It also has to be predictable and it has to be repeatable. So when you hear people talking about the Big Bang Theory proves, the Big Bang Theory can't be proven because nothing has to explode. And if it can be proven, then that means it could happen at any time. And what's interesting, and this actually plays in our favor, they affirm in the Big Bang Theory that there was a beginning, that the universe is actually not eternal. It has to have a starting point somewhere. So what makes more sense given the reality that we see? That you have a starting point that is immaterial, impersonal, comes out of chaos and results in order, or that you have a personal creator who's created people in his image that he can, they can understand creation that has ordered natural laws that govern the way the world works. Next, we see that it has to be knowable. Reality has to be knowable or science doesn't work. C.S. Lewis said it this way, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the universe had no meaning, we would have never known that it had no meaning. You see, what happens here is that we take scientific statements or science, we take statements made by scientists as scientific, and most of the time, they're philosophical. Now, I'm speaking outside the context of a lab. You know, you, you measure things in a lab, that's going to happen. But when they begin to speak as science is authoritative, what they have done is they have simply swapped out one source of authority for another source of authority. They have said, I don't care what the God of the universe has said about this. I'm, I'm going to worship creation and say this is what creation shows of it. So the last thing I want to show you uh, on the slide here, 
a gentleman named Baruch Shalev. There's a good Jewish name. He wrote a book called A Hundred Years of Nobel Prizes. Now, you, I don't know if you can read that. Uh, probably not from where you're at, but let me just uh, interpret this for you. So at the very top, it says, Percentage of Nobel Prizes won by atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers from 1901 to 2000. And underneath it, it says, Between 1901 and 2000, reveals that atheists, so people who believe God doesn't exist, agnostics, those that say, I don't know if God exists or not, and free thinkers, they just think freely, comprise 10.5% of total Nobel Prize winners from 1901 to 2000. So if you flip that in reverse, that means that 89.5% of Nobel Prize winners from 1901 to 2000 were theists. And if you zoom in a little bit, what you can see there, that big long line on the end, that means that 35% of atheists, or 30, in that discipline, which is the discipline of literature, 35% of the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize in literature from 1901 to 2000 were atheists, agnostics, or free thinkers, which means that 65% of them were still theists. If you go to the left, 8.9% of physiology, 7.1% of chemistry, 5.2% of economics, 4.7% of physics, and 3.6% of Nobel Peace Prizes were awarded to people who did not have a theistic worldview. So if we flip that on its head, that means that 95.3% of physics, 95.3% of physics Nobel Prizes from 1901 to year 2000 were theists. 92.9% of chemistry Nobel Prizes were theists. 91.1% of medicine and physiology Nobel Prizes were theists. So unless I'm missing something, I don't think that science and Christianity are incompatible because I think, in fact I know, that the assumptions that are built into science for it to work are only those assumptions that are found in a Christian worldview. You can't have a worldview that says you can only know things through your five senses and all that exists is material and expect science to work. It takes more than that because science is a philosophical enterprise in which it's you have to make assumptions about what is true, what is real, and what is good, and those assumptions have to steal from other worldviews which tell you that that naturalistic worldview is insufficient. But if you step over into the theistic worldview, every assumption that science requires to work is found there and is consistent there and is not in any sort of confrontation with the truths of Christianity. Let me pray for you. You're out four minutes early. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for uh, everyone that's here tonight. Thank you for their desire to learn. Lord, I pray that this was edifying in a way that we can have truth and we can have an understanding of reality and understanding of who you are that is shown through the discipline of science and not in uh, conflict with the discipline of science. And so, Lord, as we, we try to walk through this cultural moment that you've put us in with the confusion that is there, give us clarity and courage to stand for what is true as you have revealed it in your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.